All right, good morning, church family. Once again, uh, let me invite you to find your seat. And uh, as you find your seat, uh, if you would uh, open your Bibles or type into your devices uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. This morning we're going to be in verses 34 to 35. Just two verses. I was planning to do uh, four verses, but the first two verses are just so glorious and so uh, filled with application and, and, and that I, I just I couldn't fit all four in. Uh, so this morning, we're just going to be looking at verses 34 and 35. The title of the sermon this morning is Denying Self in a Culture of Idolizing Self. So let's read a text, open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these words of Jesus this morning, I pray that all of us here would would grasp the gravity of these words. That in them, Jesus Christ has given us the gospel, the means by which we can be saved, the means by which we will not suffer destruction and your wrath, but can have eternal life. But God, we recognize it comes at a cost. We recognize it comes at a, at a very heavy and, and weighty cost, both for Jesus ultimately, predominantly, but also for us, it comes at a cost. I pray, God, that you would give us faith this morning to be willing, joyfully willing to pay that cost. I pray that everybody here would be willing to deny themselves even though we are swimming in a pool of idolizing self. Help us, God, to to take to heart the words of Jesus this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to give the context of where we've been and uh, where we're at this morning, and then I'll give exposition of the text, and then I'll give us eight Uh, points of application this morning. So let me give the context. Uh, Last week, we saw that Jesus was traveling from Bethsaida, which is on the Sea of Galilee, to Caesarea Philippi, which is 25 miles to the north. And they were walking there. Now, as they're walking there, Jesus asked the disciples two questions. Number one, he says, who do people say that I am? And number two, he says, What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, Peter immediately confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But right after this glorious confession, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what this means. What does it mean to be the Christ? And he says that he is going to suffer, be rejected, die, and then rise again. Now, Peter can't process this. He has no framework for processing this. So he begins to rebuke Jesus. 
But Jesus rebukes him right back and tells him, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus desires to correct Peter and the disciples' conception of the Messiah, their perception of the Messiah. His mission was to suffer. It is to be rejected. It is to die. And what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus wants them to know, he wants us to know this morning, that if the Messiah is walking into suffering, into rejection, into death, then to follow him means for us to walk into suffering, into rejection, into death. Because that's where he's headed. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's start with the exposition of the text, beginning in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So Jesus once again calls the crowds to him. Now I want to pause right there and highlight this word crowd. We see it 148 times in the Gospels. Jesus was frequently surrounded by crowds. Now, the fact that there is a crowd there means the people are curious. You see, they have heard reports that there is this man who can heal people. He can even feed people. He can even at your wedding turn your water into wine. Greatest vendor of all time. And their curiosity brings them to Jesus. But Jesus is not interested in having crowds. He is not satisfied with thousands of people coming to him out of their curiosity or their desire to eat. So he calls them to him. Notice Jesus calls them. You see, the Lord calls us. And he said to them, if anyone would come after me, literally, if anyone would follow me. Now, I want you to notice the lack of qualifier in this statement. He says, if who? Who? Anyone. If anyone. Is the call of Christ open to anyone? Yes. Jesus says if anyone, if anyone desires to follow Jesus, let him, I don't know why the ESV translates this as let him. The NASB, the NIV, and the NET all have he must. And the reason they translate it he must is because the three verbs that follow are all in the imperative mood. They're all commands. He must do three things. If anyone would come after Jesus, he must do three things. Number one, he must deny himself. Now, what does that mean to deny himself? Well, the, the verb means to act in a wholly selfless manner, to deny oneself. What does that mean? Well, imagine I am on a spiritual diet. The Lord Jesus Christ is my trainer. And there is a sinful brownie in the pantry of my life. I have two options. I can indulge myself or I can deny myself. 
Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself. Now notice, what are we denying here? What are we denying? Not just our personalities. Not just our desires. Not just our hobbies. Not just our dreams. Not just our appetites. What are we denying here? He must deny himself. All of it. All of himself. Everything. My personality, my desires, my finances, my hobbies, my dreams, my goals, my plans, my appetites, my emotions, my thoughts. He must deny all of it. Number two, he must take up his cross. Now, this probably made it real for the crowds, right? Because we've never seen a crucifixion, but they had. They had seen crucifixions. They witnessed it with their eyes. They heard the screams of people hanging there, being tortured to death. They knew what it sounded like. And so when Jesus told them that you must pick up your cross, it just got real. Jesus told his disciples that he will suffer, be rejected, and be killed because he wants them to know. He wants everybody there that's there to say, well, let, yeah, let's go see who this guy is. I've heard that he can feed us. I've heard that he can give us wine. I've heard that he can heal our fevers. Let's go see him. And Jesus says, I want all of you to know that I am heading to suffering, rejection, and death. And if you're going to follow me, that's where I'm going. What does it mean to take up our cross? What does that mean? That we take up our cross? It means by the grace of God, we happily, we joyfully put our flesh and our sin to death. It means that when I get angry, I take up my cross and I crucify my anger. When I get anxious, I take up my cross and I crucify my anxiety. When I feel pride welling up in my heart, I take up my cross and I crucify my pride. When I greedily want to hold on to all my money, I take up my cross and I crucify my greed. What does it mean to crucify it? Friend, have you ever considered that there's no such thing as a partial crucifixion? Nobody ever said, well, what's, what, what was your sentence? Partial crucifixion. Crucifixion is always intended to kill its victim. Always. It doesn't stop until they die. And the same must be true of our flesh and our sin. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, he must put to death his flesh and his sin. Number three, he must follow me. He must follow me. I was teaching my son this past week about tautologies. You guys remember that? Learning about tautologies? It's the, the saying of the same thing in different words. It's something that's unnecessarily redundant or self-evident. Your athletes say it all the time. Well, we do what we do. That's a tautology. 
This saying of Jesus sounds a bit tautologous because he says, if anyone would follow me, he must follow me. That's a tautology. Now, but why does Jesus give us a tautologous statement? Why does he say this? I'll talk more about this in the application. Talk more about this in the application. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, what does that mean for us, right? Because for, for the disciples and for the early church, it meant like, for disciples at least, it meant literally to follow him, like in the flesh, like to walk behind him and follow him. But what about us? What does it mean for us to follow him? Because I, we can't go find him. What does that mean? I think it's interesting that we have a term in our society today called a follower, right? We say that this person has, you know, one million followers. Here's the problem with the term. I can follow an athlete and never play sports. I can follow a musician and never pick up an instrument. You see, to be a follower in the way that we use this day just means to be a fan. That's not true with Jesus. There's only one type of follower of Jesus Christ, and it is those who live as he lived. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Now we get to one of Jesus' paradoxical statements, and it's a glorious one. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's paradoxical. What does that mean? The word used for save is the normal word for save. It just means to preserve or rescue from natural dangers and afflictions, keep from harm, to rescue. The word for lose can mean everything from lose to perish to destroy. So what is Jesus saying here? Now remember, where did Jesus say that he was headed? He said, I am going to suffering, to rejection, to death. Jesus knows. He says, look, if you are following me, Jesus knows that all of his disciples will come to many forks in the road. And when they get to this fork in the road, they will look down one road and look down another. And what one road leads to suffering, rejection, death. The other road leads to comfort, acceptance, safety. And Jesus is saying that as you stand at that fork in the road and you decide which of the two you're going to choose, Jesus says those who seek to save their life, those who go into self-preservation mode in an attempt to save their life will in effect destroy their life. They will destroy it. Now on the flip side, he says, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it mean to lose your life? Well, I think lose your life is synonymous here with taking up your cross denying yourself and taking up your cross. I think there's the same thing. Whoever denies himself and takes up his cross will save their life. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not teaching salvation through asceticism here. He's not teaching that just by denying self and taking up a cross of suffering, we will save our life. He says, he gives a qualifier here. He says what? For my sake and the gospels. That's important. 
It means the reason that his disciples are willing to lose their life is because they love Jesus more than their life. They love other people's eternity more than their life. That's what I think it means, the gospel's sake. We have a lot of new parents in our congregation. I'm sure they can all relate to this. And um, Marin and Chaylene are about to relate to this, along with Daniel and Alex. When you have a newborn, you make a choice to deny yourself. You deny your sleep. You deny your time. You deny your peace. You deny your freedom. Why? Why would you do that? It's an interesting question. I met a guy the other day when I asked him if he had any kids. He said, oh, no, I don't plan to have any. Why would you choose to do that? Because you love this child more than your life. Those who lose their life for the sake of Jesus's glory and for the sake of others enjoying Jesus's glory, they save their life. Why? Because they testify that their greatest treasure is not their life. That their greatest treasure is Jesus. And they save it. We'll stop there with the exposition. Application of the text. I have eight truths for us this morning. Number one. Jesus is not interested in crowds. He desires disciples. Jesus is not interested in crowds. He desires disciples. You know, in the ministry of Jesus, there always seemed to be a crowd, wasn't there? Even when Jesus would try to get away from the crowd, they would somehow find a way to get to him. He's often he's seeking rest and solitude and, and, and yet a crowd shows up inevitably. We live in a society where people love to perform for crowds. We, I mean, that's, that's just our society. People love to perform for crowds. Athletes can bring in 80,000 people. I don't know if you guys saw recently, like the, the um, there were like, eight, like, there was a football game where like 18 people were hospitalized because they're out there in like negative 12 degree weather, sitting on top of snow, watching it. Like, that's how much they love this, right? And the athletes, like, Athletes can pack in 80,000, 100,000 people into a stadium. There are musicians who can pack in uh, uh, hundreds of thousands. I even saw that some musicians like in, foreign, uh, in South America packed in millions of people. I think the world record is like 4 million people for a concert in Brazil. As I mentioned earlier, the biggest crowds that we see today, and that doesn't even compare to the biggest crowds, what is the biggest crowds we see? Online crowds called followers. I saw that one person had nine, I looked, I looked this up, who has the most followers. One person has 900 million followers. 900 million. That's 11% of the world. We live in a society where people love to perform for crowds, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus is not 
interested in crowds. He desires disciples. This is why he called the crowd to himself. See, all the crowd is kind of following him at a distance and he calls them to himself. And then he tells them the most difficult thing that any person could ever hear. You don't say these kind of things if you desire crowds. Jesus is not interested in crowds. He desires disciples. There's a perennial debate in evangelical Christianity about the so-called church growth movement. There are even bachelor's degrees and master's degrees in church growth, which I always found kind of ironic. Of course, we always want people to come to church. We always want more people to come to church. That's always true. I always want people to come to church. I always want more people to come to church, but we must not make it our central desire to have crowds to fill these seats. Why? Because Jesus' desire was not for crowds. Our desire must be for disciples. Disciples. Because that was Jesus' desire, was for disciples Number two, the call of Christ is for anyone. The call of Christ is for anyone. We are a church that teaches what is called Reformed theology. Now, we don't have time to get into all of what that means. Nowhere near the time to get into that. One of the critiques that I hear every year about Reformed theology is this. You believe that only God's elect can be saved. I don't, I don't subscribe to this. I don't like Reformed theology because you believe that only God's elect can be saved. Now, that's a straw man. That's a straw man. Why? Because we believe that only God's elect will be saved. Will. But anybody can be saved. Anybody can be. Jesus makes this explicitly clear in his word. The call of Christ is for anyone. It does not matter your background or your past or what you brought into this place. The call of Christ is for you. In this passage, he says, if anyone would come after me. We see this idea all throughout the gospels. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, Mark 4, 23. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, Luke 14, 26. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, John 6, 51. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, John 7, 37. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, John 8, 51. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, John 10, 9. The call of Christ is for anyone and everyone. When Jesus called the crowd to himself, no doubt in this crowd, there were all kinds of demographics. Just like this morning, there are all kinds of demographics. But Jesus did not say, if the rich would come after me. He did not say, if the educated would come after me. If you churchgoers would come after me. If the righteous would come after me. 
if the Jews would come after me. He doesn't even say if the elect would come after me. He says if anyone would come after me. You see, the question of is Christianity an inclusive religion or an exclusive religion? Right? That, that question that I always get asked. Is Christianity inclusive or exclusive? It's a trick question. It's both. It's both. It is exclusive in that we can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. It is exclusive in that sense. We can only be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. But it is inclusive in that if anyone places their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. Doesn't matter who you are. Anyone can be saved. Three. Jesus calls us to deny self in a culture of idolizing self. Jesus calls us to deny self in a culture of idolizing self. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him what? What is the first condition that he gives? Deny himself. Now, why is that the first condition? Why out of everything, like, why is it, why is that the first condition? He must deny himself because the central and ubiquitous problem that all of us have is this. We love ourselves. Man, we love ourselves. If we are left to ourselves, we will worship ourselves. And let me say right now, if any of you are thinking, I don't love myself. Yes, you do. You just don't know it. We love ourselves. There is a raging river of self in our world today that seeks to highlight and elevate this. That doesn't want to just hide this under the rug and pretend like we all don't love ourselves. The world now is, it's a raging river that says, celebrate this, highlight this, glory in this. I mean, we see it in countless phrases, don't we? Self-confidence, self-worth, self-absorbed, self-esteem, self-love, self-made, self-centered, self-sufficient, self-interest, self-care, self-sustaining, self-pity, self-indulgence, even the very concept of a self-e. We love ourselves. And the concept of denying self the very concept that, that you would deny self is to swim against this raging river. You try to deny yourself in this world, it is to swim against the current of this raging river. You see, the world is preaching a gospel of love yourself. Love yourself. Jesus Christ is preaching a gospel of deny yourself. Deny yourself. Now, why do we need to deny ourselves? Well, the road is narrow. Remember, Jesus said that the road is narrow. The road is so narrow that it's single file line. Remember in kindergarten, single file, students. 
The road is so narrow that it's single file line and there is only room for one leader. It will either be Christ or ourselves. There are only two mutually exclusive options to love oneself or deny oneself. That's it. Jesus calls us to deny self in a culture of idolizing self. Four, there is never a day where I have not been crucified with Christ. And there is never a day where I do not need to take up my cross daily. There is never a day where I have not been crucified with Christ. And there is never a day where I do not need to take up my cross daily. I want to point something out about these first two verbs, deny himself and take up. Both of those first two verbs are aorist, active imperatives. Now, aorist means that it's past tense. But the verb for follow me is a present active imperative, which means it's something we do in the present. Now, why does that matter? What Jesus is saying here is that there is a decisive moment in our life where we categorically, positionally deny ourselves. Categorically, positionally, where I have denied myself. It is a, a punctiliar moment in our life where we deny ourselves, And there is a decisive moment in our life where we categorically, positionally take up our cross. Right? That's true. And yet lest we think that this is a one and done denying. This is a one and done, you know, picking up of the cross, right? Where like when I was 17, I denied myself. I took up my cross. I did that like 30 years ago. Unless we think it's a one and done, Jesus makes it clear that this is an ongoing denying as well. It's an ongoing taking up of the cross. It's ongoing. Now, to point this out, to make this point, to point out the seeming paradoxical tension here, let me draw our attention to two verses. The first is Galatians 2.20, one of the glorious passages in the scriptures where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now notice what he said there. I have been crucified with Christ, which means it's done. It's done. I have I, I, I do not go get crucified again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is done. There is never a day. I wake up every day a crucified man, crucified in Christ. On my, on my worst day as a sinner, on your worst day as a sinner, if you are in Christ, you have been crucified with Christ. The second verse is Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. And Luke adds a word of Jesus that Mark doesn't add. Deny himself, take up his cross daily. Daily. Not yearly. Not quarterly. Not monthly. Daily. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. 
There is never a day where I have not been crucified with Christ and there is never a day that I do not need to pick up my cross daily. Both are true. Five, Jesus died on his cross so that we could take up our cross joyfully. Jesus died on his cross so that we could take up our cross joyfully. I want to draw your attention to this verb, take up. Notice what Jesus says there. He says he must what to this cross? Take it up. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Notice, this cross is not being forced upon us. He doesn't say, if anyone would come after me, let him suffer under a cross. Let him like just grunt it out. He says, let him take it up, meaning it sits right at your feet. You get in an argument with your spouse. I mean, they've just made you so mad. And you want to let them have it, and that cross sits right there at your feet. It's your decision whether you want to take it up or not. The cross is not forced upon us. It's willingly taken up. Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. The Father did not make His Son get crucified. Do not think that the Father made His Son get crucified. Jesus willingly took up the cross. Willingly. He took up His cross so that we could take up our cross. Now, this is so important. Why? Because there are going to be moments in your life where taking up that cross is going to feel impossible. You're going to have moments where it just like, like you're like, pastor, I hear what you're saying. I know, I know, I know, I know I need to take up my cross, but like, honestly, I don't see how I can do it. There are going to be moments in your life where taking up this cross, it's going to feel impossible. Your spouse has desecrated your marriage and had an affair. And Jesus is calling you to take up your cross and forgive them. Your child is draining all your energy and patience. I got no more. And Jesus is calling you to take up your cross and persevere. Your singleness is leaving you bitter and resentful at God. And Jesus is calling you to take up your cross and hope in him. Your boss has angered you to a point of no return. And Jesus is calling you to take up your cross and suffer for his name's sake. Your porn addiction has imprisoned your mind. And Jesus is calling you to take up your cross and gouge out your right eye. There are going to be many, many times in your life where taking up a cross feels absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. How do you do it? How do you do it? By looking to the original one who took up his cross. Looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, took up the cross, endured the cross, and despised the shame. You see, not only does Jesus enable us to take up the cross, 
You might think, well, okay, Jesus enables me, but not, here, here's the kicker. Not only does he enable us to take up the cross, you're like, oh, okay, gosh, I'm taking up my cross. Yeah, I'm gonna, it's, like, it's my cross to bear. Not only does Jesus enable us to take up the cross, he also enables us to take it up the way he took it up for the joy set before us. She's taking up the cross. It, it, it only counts if we um, do it joyfully. Imagine if Jesus went to the cross and he's like, oh, I've got to die for Tim. Oh. Imagine if Jesus took up the cross like that. Isn't that how we take up our crosses so often? Jesus enables us to not only take up our cross, but to take it up joyfully. Six, if anyone wants to follow Jesus, he must follow Jesus. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, he must follow Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, this sounds a bit tautologous. But here's why it's important. Here's why it's important, where I think Jesus is going with this. You see, there are two extremes with verses 34 and 35. Here are the two extremes. A is to deny ourselves and take up our cross, period. And B, to follow Jesus, period. Let me discuss these two extremes. A, to deny ourselves and take up our cross, period. Now, what's wrong with this? Well, you can be a Buddhist and deny yourself and take up your cross. There's nothing Christian about denying oneself if that is all we do. The ascetics do this. Buddhist monks do this. There is nothing Christian about taking up a cross of suffering. People suffer for their beliefs all the time. I was watching a, a YouTube video the other day of... Um, when, when, when people have had enough of protesters, that was what it was called. When people have had enough of protesters. And it was a video of, you know, people like block like the interstate or block roads and then cars were just like running through them. That's the kind of videos I watch. Uh, <laughs> these people, they wouldn't move. Now, nobody got killed, but one person, they actually, the car was literally gonna run over them. They got on the car on the hood, and the car's driving, like down, the, it drove like a whole mile. This person is just holding on the hood. I'm like, you're gonna die. See, people will suffer for their beliefs all the time. There's nothing Christian about being willing to suffer. People will suffer all the time for their beliefs. B, the other extreme, to follow Jesus, period. Now, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with following Jesus? Well, Judas followed Jesus. Judas followed Jesus. He didn't deny himself and take up his cross. The crowds followed Jesus, but many of them did not take up their cross and deny themselves. You see, there are many in the church, hear me when I say this, there are many in the church who are following a pastor, other Christians, a community, morality, the crowd, culture, their family's expectations. How do you know if you're actually following Jesus? How do you know? 
I'll give you one way to tell. Do you wind up in the same destination? A cross. Do you wind up in the same destination? A cross. You see, we cannot follow Jesus the way people follow Taylor Swift. You follow Jesus the way people follow Taylor Swift, you go to hell. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, he must actually follow Jesus. Number seven, self-preservation will destroy us. Self-preservation will destroy us. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. For whoever would save his life, will lose it. let me give you my interpretation of this statement by Jesus. For whoever makes self-preservation their goal in this life will destroy their self in the next life. Let me say that again. Whoever makes self-preservation their goal in this life will destroy their self in the next life. See, Jesus is warning against the danger of self-preservation. Now, what does self-preservation look like? What does that look like to, to, to idolize this? It looks like Saul. Remember Saul? He waited for Samuel seven days. Samuel said, wait for me to make the sacrifice. He waited seven days. On the seventh day, Samuel didn't show up. And uh, what happened? The people began scattering from him. He, he, he begins to fear. He's like, oh no, I'm losing my power. I'm losing my influence. B bring me the animals. Bring me the sacrifice. See, self-preservation kicked in. Self-preservation kicked in. I've got to preserve my power. I've got to preserve my influence. And he makes an unlawful sacrifice. And Samuel then shows up as soon as he makes it and says, you have done very foolishly. It looks like Simon Peter. When a person accused him of being a disciple of, of Jesus, they said, I know you. You're one of them. And he said, no, I'm not. Self-preservation kicks in. Three times, self-preservation kicked in. And he says, I do not know him. You see, Peter almost shipwrecked his faith. He was this close to shipwrecking his faith. Out of self-preservation. Now, what about today? What does self-preservation look like for us today? It looks like people who work jobs that require them to make their job an idol. Require them to make it an idol. And yet they stay at their job because they believe that they must maintain a certain level of income. They just continue doing it because I have to make this income. It looks like people who will not take any safety risks, even for the gospel, because it's the wise thing to do. It looks like women who get abortions because my lifestyle and my freedom is more important than having it wrecked by having a child. It looks like people who would not go to church during COVID because what is most important is that I physically live. It looks like people who will not challenge someone they love 
because to do so might bring a strained or broken relationship. Brothers and sisters, self-preservation will destroy us. For whoever would save his life will destroy his life. Number eight, last point. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. The very first gift that my wife Lauren gave me was a picture frame. Inside the frame, she had written in calligraphy, Mark 8, 34 to 35. We were just friends at the time, but she gave it to me as a birthday gift. Safe to say I was won over. That was almost 20 years ago. It still hangs in my office to this day. On the back of the frame, she wrote this quote by Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was one of the five missionaries who was killed by the Alka tribe in South America in 1956. Jesus says, whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Let me contrast this with two men, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. See, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he thinks he's already done everything. He's like, I've already done this. Let me just ask, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. The rich young ruler hears this and he's disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many possessions. Second story, Jesus walks up to Zacchaeus who was sitting in a tree. And he goes over to him and he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus comes down and he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Now let me ask you a question, church family. Who was the fool? Who was the fool? See, the rich young ruler decided to save his life and he lost it. Zacchaeus decided to lose his life and he saved it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let's pray.